Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Tata Cancer Podcast. I cannot believe we have made it to double digits. Very exciting. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been following this podcast, and if today is your first episode, thanks for tuning in. I'm super excited to have you here. Today, you are in for a treat because I interviewed a woman I have so much respect for and who I think is such an important member of the breast cancer community, April Stearns. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Wildfire Magazine and Writing Community. She's also a breast cancer survivor and just a lovely, graceful woman who I I just think is is been such a gift. I read Wildfire Magazine while I was going through my treatment and I read it in survivorship. She's also got a podcast called The Burn, which is fantastic. I cannot wait to bring our chat to you today. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Hello and welcome to the Tata Cancer Podcast, where we will discuss the physical and mental elements of healing from a breast cancer diagnosis. My name is Junie Boucher. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a breast cancer survivor. When you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you're forced to make life-changing decisions with so much information that's really hard to sift through. My intention is to help provide you with the information you need to make a decision that's going to align your body, mind, and heart so that you can live your best life going forward. I'm going to be your new breast friend. Okay, let's do this. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Please always consult with your doctor for any of your medical needs. So I'm super, super excited to have April Stearns with us today. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Wildfire Magazine and Writing Community, and she's also a breast cancer survivor. So thank you so much, April. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to do this with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I was thinking we could just start by you telling us your breast cancer story and, uh, and then we'll talk about all these amazing things that you do for this community. Sure. Yes. So this year, 2022 will be 10 years since my diagnosis. Mm, Great. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. What a milestone. I know. And I haven't fully wrapped my brain around that yet. Um, but so my story began in 2012, my lump was found one night while breastfeeding my daughter. And so, yeah, so my story is kind of wrapped up in, in breastfeeding motherhood, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of feeling like my body finally made sense, you know, and then boom, here came this breast cancer diagnosis. So I, um, found the lump myself that night. And, you know, after I put my daughter down, had my husband, you know, feel it. I said, can you feel this? And I will never forget how white his face went. And he was like, what is that? Yeah. So by the time I was diagnosed, 
which was fairly swift um, compared to a lot of stories I hear in the young community. Um, but by the time I was diagnosed, it was measuring at seven centimeters. So wow. I had this giant tumor. Yeah. Um, I was HER2 positive and um, stage 3C. And my oncologist, my brand new oncologist, who I met, you know, all at the same time, confirmed that it probably hadn't been there a month before. So it wasn't <gasps> like this wow. giant hidden thing. It was when, when it became palpable, I felt it. And so we started down that path. Fortunately, I had a really great OBGYN and she said, it's probably milk related because you're nursing, you know, and all of that, but let's be sure. Mm -hmm. I was 35 at the time. And so no one was thinking breast cancer, but fortunately I got on that. Um, I got into those appointments, had the diagnostics done and got into the chemo chair, I think within three weeks of, of being diagnosed. So yeah, a whirlwind. So what a whirlwind. Oh my goodness. Yes. What type of cancer was it? So it was, um, so it was breast cancers and then it was HER2 positive and Uh it was hormone negative. So Uh just, just the HER2 positive. And I ended up doing, um, the whole, the whole cancer experience, as people like to say, um, I started off with chemo, hopefully to shrink it, which was, um, possible for me. It did end up responding really well to my chemo. I did that for about six months. And then I did a full 13 months of Herceptin. Um, Projeta mm-hmm. wasn't around yet, but I did Herceptin for the full 13 months. But after the big chemo, I had a unilateral mastectomy with flat closure. Mm-hmm. But was it the, was it invasive ductal or was it locked? Oh, correct. It was invasive ductal. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so gosh. And then how, how did you, how did your body respond to all of that? That's such a great question. Um, it's interesting because I'm the kind of person who kind of just puts my head down and someone says, do these things. And so I just did those things and mm-hmm my body enabled me to do all of the treatment that was laid out for me. Mm -hmm. I think I finally started to really kind of hit a wall more mentally by the time I got to radiation and Mm -hmm. started to really feel the fatigue of that full year. And it was starting to land more the, the trauma of what was happening. Sure. But body wise, I, um, I guess I got kind of lucky in the sense that I was able to do the chemo. I healed well from the surgery. I only had one breast surgery because I opted not to do breast mount reconstruction. I just Mm -hmm. had the one. Mm -hmm. Um, and even with the radiation, I, I mean, the burns were pretty, pretty severe and all of that, but it, I think for me, the challenges were more mental and Mm -hmm. physical. Mm -hmm. And how old was your daughter at the time? She was just three. So she was an older Mm. nursing child. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my story is so wrapped up in being mom to her and, you know, and prior to having to have treatment and be gone for treatment, she and I were together 24 seven. So this thing arrived and it was so, I just felt really guilty about that. To be honest, Mm. it felt like I was supposed to be protecting her from the harsh realities of life. And yet here I was also the instigator of those hard things coming in, but fortunately had a really good community 
here, um, you know, with my in-laws being able to care for her, my husband able to get support that he needed to be a caregiver for me. And so our community just pulled together to make sure that her, her experience, while not ideal, not without bumps and traumas to her, it was at least maybe less traumatizing in that she had her support too. And if you were to, it hurts my heart that you felt like this guilt that you were, you used the word instigator, you know, obviously you didn't ask to be diagnosed with cancer. And, and I mean, these are all such normal feelings, I'm sure. And that's one thing that I, I really admire about you is that you normalize all of the feelings. And that's what the wildfire community is so great at. Um, but what would you say to yourself? What, what would you say to yourself now, now that you know what you know to that person who was feeling so guilty? That's a great question. I think I would just really want her to know that cancer is no one's fault. It doesn't mm -hmm. come because of something we did or didn't do. It wasn't, um, it wasn't something I could control and all that I could control was how we responded to it. And I think mm -hmm. that I would have given, tried to give myself the grace to understand that earlier mm -hmm. so that I didn't have so many late nights. Like I literally just up late at night feeling really bad about this thing, you know, that had come. And of course, early in diagnosis, mine was stage three. Um, yeah. So there was an expectation that there would be an after treatment for me, but even still, you know, you're, you come face to face with your mortality in a way that you, for me, at least at 35 never had before. And so I think part of the guilt was, am I going to be ultimately having to leave my child behind, you know, because of this and yeah. my, both of my parents, um, actually at the time, my, only my mom had died, but I was kind of also dealing with the grief of, of that with having my mom having passed away. And so those kinds of thoughts were what were going through my head. And I wish I could have just told myself, like, you're going to, you're going to find a way to incorporate this into the fabric of the family and you will find a way to get through it. And it's not your fault. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wanted to, one of the reasons why I wanted you to bring be on the show is because I've heard your story before. I've actually heard you on multiple podcasts and, and, uh, the fertility piece I know is, is mm -hmm. a part for you. And I think that's such an important issue to cover when discussing what the experience is like for women who are diagnosed in this youngish category. And how did you approach this with your daughter? How did you talk to her about it? Um, so are you talking about just, um, you know, kind of breaking the news to her and sharing with yeah. her? About, yeah. Yeah. Like how did you walk her through the diagnosis and then how did you walk her through like chemo or did you lose your hair? Yeah. Like, those kinds of things. Yeah. So it was really important to me that we talk about all of it because I felt I got the advice and I felt very strongly from the beginning that she was going to know something was going on, whether we told her or not. And children are so tuned into the vibes of the house. And I, I didn't want her to not have confirmation, you know, or validation yeah. that what she was feeling was a legit thing that was going on.
So when I was diagnosed, I felt really strongly that I wanted to use the language of cancer. I wanted to let her know what was going on, but try to do it in an age appropriate way. I told her that I had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I told her that that meant that there were rogue cells that had started to multiply and that I needed help to get them under control. I explained chemo to her as being big medicine. We would just talk about it as being like such a big thing that I couldn't do it at home. I needed to go to a place where people would care for me and help me to get better. I Mm. think the thing that was challenging in my story though was, so she had to wean basically overnight. And even though she was three and we could talk about it, it didn't make it any easier for her at that point. She was only really nursing to go to sleep at night, Mm. but that was the whole routine was that she would nurse to sleep. So she had to suddenly learn a brand new way of falling asleep. And I mean, Mm. we know as adults, how hard (laughs) falling asleep can be, right? So, so this thing came into our lives and she had to learn new things right away. And she was pretty upset about it. And I was pretty Mm -hmm. upset about it. The other thing is, um, we, because she had to wean so suddenly, I think Mm -hmm. in retrospect, she had this idea that once the chemo was done, she would be able to go back to nursing. Mm -hmm. And so I think for her, she was just kind of holding on until, you know, this thing went away again. Right. But, you know, after five months of chemo, I then had had a mastectomy. And so literally the breast was removed from my body. And now looking back on it and knowing how upset she was and how jarring that whole thing was, I can understand that she didn't she didn't feel that there was a distinction between my body and her property or her like possession of, of me was all really linked into the breast. Right. And, um, she got so much comfort from that when I had the surgery, of course, I couldn't like hold her or hug her the way that Mm. we had been. So this, this, you know, quote unquote cancer thing that I told her about was affecting her in a lot of ways that, um, we didn't understand we're going to be affecting her. I mean, I think I kind of knew, and that's why I felt guilty about it, but as it kind of unfolded, it was definitely an experience that she, she had like legitimate experience of my cancer. Um, but we, you know, going back to just your original question of how we kind of broke all this stuff to her, I just really wanted to be open and honest and let her know that this thing was happening in our family that she could ask any question about it. Um, we got as many children books as we could find that were depicting moms versus grandmothers with breast cancer. We found a few Hmm. that were really great. Um, she went on a lot of play dates that year, you know, with, um, just people Mm -hmm. who kind of rallied around us. And, um, the other thing that we did was we made, we called them chemo gifts where people had been kind of donating to us stuff for her, you know, dress ups and art supplies and videos. And so I kind of started squirreling them away because there were so many, so much of it and discovered that it was a really great distraction for the days that I was in the chemo lounge. Cause you know, as you know, it's like an eight hour, nine hour day yeah. away. And that was brand new for us. And so we had this little stockpile of chemo gifts and, um, 
it was nice. It made me feel good that I knew she would have something new to kind of play with and maybe help take a little of the sting away that I was gone. It was nice for my community to feel like they could support her too. So that was Mm -hmm. definitely one of the little silver linings in, in the story. Sure. So you mentioned you guys looked at books. I'm familiar with one book that I got actually through Bayes, which I know, you know, Bayes, Bay Area, Young Survivor. Um, And it was called Cancer Hates Kisses. Uh Uh, That was a good one. Um, Did you, was there a specific book that if somebody listening who's in a similar position is looking for that you would recommend? Yes, I... um... And I might have to send them to you after because we'll sure. see if my, if my chemo brain allows me to recall. <laughs> no them. problem um, at all. <laughs> there was a really great one. There was three that are coming to mind. One, um, it had wig in the title or maybe crazy hair about a mom who was getting wigs. Um, mm-hmm. and they weren't the regular, like they weren't the normal wigs. They were more like punk rock kind of wigs. And it just Uh had a real like fun kind of vibe to it. And Mm -hmm. that inspired us. We all, my husband, my daughter and I, we all got crazy turquoise and pink wigs, which was really helpful. Um, (laughs) yeah. I, and then there was another one that was about a, um, planting kind of a cancer garden and my diagnosis came in March. And so this book was about, you know, this family kind of planting a garden at the beginning and then kind of following along with cancer as things are growing in the garden and, and kind of having a, a, you know, a, something to look forward to in this kind of challenging time. And so it lined up well for us. So we did this same planted a garden kind of when I, around the time I was diagnosed. And then by the time I was, you know, recovering from my mastectomy, we were, you know, eating things and harvesting things. I think it was called cancer garden. Um, I love that. That's really great. Yeah. And then there's, um, a base member, um, Sarah Olsher, who has a business called mighty and bright, and she writes books for kids mm. to get through difficult times. Um, and I think her book was called cancer party. And it's kind of what you were just asking about, like, how do you explain to children in age appropriate terms, the science of cancer. And Mm -hmm. so, um, that was also really helpful because it wasn't scary, but it was also very true too. You know, it wasn't sugarcoating a situation. It was just saying, yeah, all these cells are going crazy and we're going to have to bring in some some help, you know, to, to get everything back under control again. Yeah. That actually sounds really helpful just to say, this is the situation I need to get some help. And these are the people that are going to help. So it's very much like there's a problem, but here's the solution and we're going to handle this together. I think I can imagine that was, was very helpful to her, made it kind of easier to, to take in instead of all these unknowns or big concepts. Um, exactly. And did you, do you have, did you end up having more children after her or? So I didn't. So that is also part of this. My story is that right when I was diagnosed, my husband and I were just starting to talk about maybe having a second child. Mm -hmm. And so sorry, my dog is also barking. <laughs> you know what? The big thing about my, or I don't know who I am is very much a dog lover. I think that's really clear. So I imagine that if whoever's listening, they're probably dog people too. So please forgive our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They all want to be involved when they I hear know. us talking. Right. Um, 
So, yeah, so I had just started this thought process about, you know, having another baby or not. And one of the regrets that I have in my cancer story is that I didn't push harder for answers around my fertility. And Mm -hmm. if there were fertility preserving options, I, um, so I had a very aggressive cancer. Obviously it was already, you know, seven centimeters. It was traveling in my lymph nodes. I was diagnosed, um, stage three C. And so I got shuttled pretty much like straight into chemo from, you know, day one. Yeah. I remember one conversation with my oncologist where he asked, you know, if we were thinking about having more, I said, maybe kind of, you know, it was kind of early in even trying to decide if we wanted that. I remember my oncologist kind of made a joke about like, well, I've got two, don't do it. It's easier with one. And then we kind of moved on from there. Um, I don't fault him for that. I just wish that I would have known that it would be one of the fallouts, you know, potentially from Mm. my, from my treatment year. I, I went straight into menopause, um, almost didn't regain a regular period. Yeah. I never regained a regular period. I've had like Mm. a period here and there, but I'm now fully in, um, in menopause and, you know, after everything, after all the dust settled, we talked about, you know, how, how hard we wanted to try, like how important having another child was to us. We spent a few years doing some alternative treatments, but I never really wanted to do IVF. I felt like after my year of cancer treatment, I was kind of fatigued on a lot of medical intervention. So we did more things like acupuncture, massage, you know, nutrition. And it was kind of just like, well, if it happens amazing, but if it doesn't, then maybe I could be okay with that as well. And we never got to the point of, um, serious surrogacy or adoption. We just kind of decided, okay, it's not in the cards for us. I adopted a dog and we kind of decided to move on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, in my experience too, and I don't, you know, I never had kids and it was kind of ironic because my partner and I, at the time, um, he, we had actually been trying and it was late in life for me because I was already 40 when we had started trying and they said, you you would probably need IVF. And I remember just instinctually saying, I don't, I don't want to do that. And then I kind of, we tried for a bit while longer and then I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So if I had done the IVF, cause I was completely hormone driven, okay, yes. I could have, that could have been like throwing kerosene on a fire. And yep. then when I was in, um, you know, when I was in my treatment, whatever they, it was, yeah, it was a very quick conversation. Do yeah. you want to discuss freezing eggs? And I was so overwhelmed at the time. Like it's, <laughs> I'm sure anybody listening to this and you can relate is like these crazy life-changing decisions. Like, do you want to have kids or not? Right. Like you're, you're deciding that when you're deciding whether or not you want to have your breast removed or yes, you know, have a lumpectomy. It's like, that's the, that's the thing that's been driving me with doing all this is like, how do we make these life-changing decisions and have as much information in front of us as possible? Do you feel that in, and in terms of your interaction within the community, because you're in touch with so many breast cancer patients and survivors, do you feel like that's changed at all? That, that there is more of a push on that? Yes, I think it seems that there is. I definitely hear stories similar to ours, you know, where it's just mm-hmm. a very fast um, conversation. But then fortunately, I'm also hearing more and more 
that the fertility part is being kind of folded into the diagnosis part. And there's, um, there, there, they are asking more questions about that. It does seem more, um, I don't know if common's the right word, but I'm hearing more that people are freezing their eggs and going through things if they feel like they have the time to do that before yeah. they get straight into um into the chemo. And I feel like there's just more awareness in the oncology community that breast cancer is happening younger. And so yeah. that is part of that needs to be part of the support for a younger um person. I mm-hmm. think prior to or at least when I was going through it, it felt like because it was so, um, it was an emergency, right? A cancer emergency was happening mm-hmm. that there was more emphasis on fighting the fire right here versus, you know, the aftermath and the years that I would potentially be living in this body afterward. Yeah. And I feel like part of the reason that those discussions aren't happening is because before more women were having it and still more women are having it post-menopausal, you know, it's like a different equation and a different number of survivorship years. And now we're talking about, and, and there need to be studies on this, but okay. If we fight your cancer in your thirties, what would it look like if you then live to 70, you know, or longer, like what, what does that look like? But we're so focused on fighting this right now. Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there and fertility kind of falls in that gap. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to hear that it, it it's being folded into the conversation more and, and that they're acknowledging this group of, of people who are being diagnosed because yeah, it seems like, especially in California, we're both from, I'm from the Bay area. I don't, I'm, I'm living in Southern California now, but you know, in California, especially, I think is Marin supposedly it's like the highest breast cancer rate in the world. Yeah, I've heard which that. Is wild. And um, so, you know, moving forward a little bit, how do you feel? What is your daughter's perspective on that whole time of her life? I'm curious. You guys talk That's about interesting. It? Yeah, we haven't talked about it in a little while. Um, she's growing up in a culture of breast cancer because of my work. And, um, you know, she's constantly aware of, you know, my business contacts and my friends are all in the breast cancer community. And she sees the images and, um, here's the stories and it's, it's just her norm. It's just part of the fabric of her life at this point. Um, when we do talk about that, time when I was actually going through it, she used to have a lot more kind of trauma around it. I could feel that it was something that needed to be explored and, and really kind of worked through for her. Mm -hmm. And so at one point she and I had kind of started a, maybe writing a children's book that, you know, we could do together and we didn't end up ever publishing it, but I think the process of working on that together and like, okay, what do you, what would you want other kids to know and understand mm-hmm. really helped her see her experience in a different way, kind of step next to it and look at it from more of like, you know, she doesn't know this, but more of a journalistic point of view, which can mm-hmm. really help heal big traumas. Mm-hmm. So I think at this point, Honestly, I think she's okay. We haven't started talking about the fact that now she has a family history of, of breast cancer. We haven't really yeah. talked about how it will affect her potentially, but I think that, um, 
I think the short answer is, I think she's really good. I think, you know, if there is any silver lining, it's that she's got this huge amount of awareness that bad things can happen to families. And we don't really know what's going on in someone else's family. And, um, we need to be compassionate about that. I, yeah, absolutely. And I also think it must be so healing for her to see, I'm sure she has a lot of admiration for what you're doing and seeing that like, wow, this, this trauma turned into this beautiful thing that's bringing so much strength to not only my mom and her friends and these other people that we didn't even know before. Right. You know, I think what, what a lovely thing for her to envision. No. So I'm assuming you did not have the BRCA No. So, right. I've not been diagnosed with, um, a known mutation. I have been diagnosed with, uh, I think they call it VUS variant of unknown significance. Uh And, um, you know, I have, I have that too. Okay. Okay. So you're like, okay, (laughs) great. I know. (laughs) So the, what I've been told is that there's probably something there that just hasn't been identified yet because mm-hmm. I do have a grandmother who, um, who died of metastatic breast cancer. And then after my diagnosis, my dad was also diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So there's mm-hmm. definitely something, but it hasn't been identified yet. Right. Right. And then I wanted to just, Oh, there's my dog again. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just discuss, you know, one of the things I'm happy I can actually tell you this, that has been really wonderful for me with Wildfire, which we're going to talk about soon. Um, Wildfire magazine has really gorgeous photographs. And one of the best things or most healing things for me is just showing women's bodies and normalizing Mm -hmm. what this looks like, because, you know, you mentioned you had the flat closure, you never opted for the additional surgery. I had an immediate reconstruction on a right mastectomy um, and I was supposed to have the the surgery on the left side, the matching surgery. And I, I, something came up when that was supposed to happen and I've just been kind of living with it and something with the, um, with wildfire and, and all the pictures that you guys post, it's really helped me see, oh, I don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that that's, mm-hmm. that's something I really want to be covering here. And, and I think wildfire does such a great job of that the, the reconstruction is really pushed on people. It's assumed Mm -hmm. that, you know, and, and it's communicated in a way of it's going to be traumatic for you if you don't do it, which I I see that perspective. And I don't know, I don't regret having the immediate reconstruction, although I do wish they had discussed more about the risks of implant. Cause that was another thing, very quick conversation. I do have a history of autoimmune disease and Mm you know, now I'm like, Oh, uh." so, um, but how could you tell us a little bit about your journey with that decision? Yes. So my, the way that my treatment went is that even though I met my surgeon as part of that initial diagnosis, meeting the team and all of that, I did, um, my chemo first to right. potentially, or to kind of hopefully shrink the tumor, but I think really to just kind of halt the, the cells from traveling around. 
So I had some time to think about the surgery that I wanted. And some people, you know, have their surgery immediately and then go into chemo. Um, so in that regard, it gave me some time to kind of debate, but I think from day one, I knew that I wanted to try to get through my cancer treatment as swiftly as possible. So my surgery decisions were based largely on what is going to be the fastest route to getting back to my child, you know, and how, how can I maximize that? Also that fertility question came into play. I was really hoping that if I were to have another child, I could breastfeed again. It was something that I felt like I was able to do and I had enjoyed the experience. And so I wanted to be able to do that again. Um, and it was very top of mind since that's what I was, that was what I was immersed in, you know, when I was diagnosed, Um, and so I didn't have to fortunately fight for that. I just told the surgeon that I wanted, um, to not have breast mound reconstruction. Flat closure was not a term that was, um, on the, on the menu at that Mm -hmm. point. But I just said, you know, I just, can I just go without? And he said, sure. And he didn't even, I've heard stories of people, surgeons then turning to the husband and being like, well, what do you want? What do you feel? Yeah. And mine didn't do anything like that. (laughs) He just, yeah. He just said, sure. And, um, I've also heard stories, you know, of course of people being denied their flat closure and having pockets of skin left, you know, in case they change their mind, mine, my surgeon thankfully didn't do that either. He, he took it all the way down to my rib cage. I'm very flat on that side. And this, the bonus that I didn't expect to have from it is that having a natural breast has really been a big benefit in my um, sexual, you know, intimacy, all the healing around that, Mm. that has taken some blows because of being in menopause and everything Mm -hmm. else that happens, you know, body image issues, everything else. So having a natural breast wasn't something I thought about being helpful for, for intimacy at all when I was making those decisions, but now Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm feel fortunate that I have it. And so Mm -hmm. that for me, now plays a big part in my, um, and being unilateral or asymmetric, I should say, actually. Wow. That that's awesome that you bring that up. Cause I actually just interviewed, um, a sexologist about, hmm. you know, the sexual experience and the sexual aftermath. So do you feel like that benefit arises because what, you know, with a mastectomy or with the flat closure, I'm assuming there's no feeling, right. is it numb? And so you, is it the, just having the sensation is yes. that, Okay. It's having the sensation. Um, no one talked to me about the fact that when you remove your breasts, you're removing, you know, an erogenous zone and a big one. Um, and I don't think there was ever any discussion about that at all. And so I just kind of came to realize it later that with being in menopause with, you know, um, I have gone through the, not so much atrophy, you know, vaginal atrophy, but Mm -hmm. just things aren't as elastic as they once were. There's more discomfort and pain for a long time. Intercourse was off the table. And so then it's like, okay, what, what else still remains? And for me still having sensation in a breast was a really big deal to just feel connected to my body and to feel like, okay, this body can provide some pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually talk about all that stuff, the, the menopausal symptoms, vaginal atrophy, how can you explore other erogenous zones? Um, 
Yeah. I'm so glad you guys are talking about that. Yeah. yeah. She, this woman, she's really amazing. And, um, okay, well it's good to know. Okay. I was like, I feel like this is a good topic and sounds like yes. it, it is. <laughs> yes. Um, so, well, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's very personal and intimate. So let's talk about wildfire. Yeah. Um, how did that tell the, tell the listeners what, what it is and, and how maybe that kind of came about. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, what it is, is a magazine that is dedicated to telling the stories of the young breast cancer community from their own perspective. So I publish it twice, or I'm sorry, publish it six times a year. So every other month, an issue comes out and each issue has around 30 contributors. So that's a hundred pages plus, and they're coming from all over the world, all stages of breast cancer, just all diagnosed under 50. And the reason that I made this magazine was because of my own need in the years following my diagnosis, where I felt like I had been told that my life would go back to normal. And what I experienced was that I was completely changed from having gone through that trauma. I, um, fortunately had an employer who stuck by me all through my cancer treatment. And I really felt like I really owed him a lot. So I spent the years following cancer treatment, really trying to keep doing a good job for him and keep working. And this was an event planning, but it had discovered that my passion for that job had really kind of sailed and was trying to figure out what the next chapter would look like. And it was around that time that my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So he asked me to be his caregiver. And I decided that that, that made sense to me. And I really wanted to do that for him and found kind of after the fact that it was a great way for me to put to use some of the stuff I had learned from my own cancer experience. Mm -hmm. So that, that I kind of got that little click of like, oh, this makes sense. Like, not that that's why I had cancer, but it felt good to be able to use it in some way for good. So I helped my dad. He, I got about five and a half months with him before he passed away. And mm -hmm. in that time, in addition to all the logistics of caregiving, he also started telling me all the stories of, you know, my childhood, his childhood, the stories of the land. I grew up on 50 acres and he, we just walked and talked as much as we could. And I, started to really understand storytelling as legacy in that moment and mm -hmm. could see how healing it was for him to be sharing these stories and getting to kind of taste his life twice through that process of sharing. And then I got to absorb them. I got to share them with my brothers. You know, it was this big ongoing flow of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So after he passed away and I was kind of looking to see what was next for me, I just realized how much I wanted to stay in cancer, that it really made sense to me and was healing me to be around others that were kind of experiencing some of the same questions and, you know, that aftermath piece. Mm -hmm. Also, there's not a lot of resources, or at least there especially wasn't in 2012 for the young community. And so I really wanted to find age specific resources, stories to help me understand how someone else was making sense of it all and going through it. 
And when I couldn't find it, I decided somewhat reluctantly, well, I guess I'm <laughs> gonna <laughs> guess I'm gonna figure out how to publish a magazine. And yeah. I decided to make it a magazine, even though I didn't have any experience in that, um, because I wanted it to be something that someone could dip in and dip out of, you know, open mm -hmm. it, read a little bit, maybe absorb some you know, pictures and then set it aside versus, you know, like a big book or something like that when their attention span might be lessened or just, you know, the flow of life maybe wouldn't let them read. I pictured someone reading it in, you know, during chemo or something. So in between, you know, snoozing off that Benadryl or whatever mm -hmm. was um, next, they could have something with them, a companion. So they would know they weren't alone. And yeah. so, yeah, it started with the magazine. It started totally digitally, just, you know, doing what I knew how to do, which was basically blogging. And then over the years, it's going into six years now, it's become a print magazine and we've developed it further into this community of writers where I help people figure out how to tell their breast cancer stories in a way that will be ultimately very healing for them. Yeah, that's, I definitely think you're accomplishing that. And I keep it, I actually have, it's in my coffee table. I keep it there because it's a, it's visually very beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'll, I pick it up and I kind of read an essay or a poem, or I look at a photo spread and then I put it back. Um, Cause mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, sometimes you want a lot. Sometimes you just need a little bit and that's enough. Um, if, because of those mental breaks from cancer, especially if right. you moved into a, a career that revolves around it. But um, the photos I think are so gorgeous. Is there a house photographer is, or do you just feature, is it you or is it artists that no, it's, I've gotten so lucky with this, that we are now living in a time where people are being more visible and, you know, in their bodies and in their experiences. And so a lot of writers come having photos at that, their oh, disposal. Wow. Yeah. So I've been really lucky that, um, I haven't, especially during the pandemic, I haven't needed to travel around and photograph. Um, these are just, they're photos that are contributed by the writers. I definitely have an aesthetic for wildfire. So I'm matching yeah. photos, you know, that kind of fit with what I want the overall, um, magazine to look and feel like, but yeah, the, the photographers linked to each writer really deserve all the credit for that. But you have curated them in a way that it feels you are being very loyal to this aesthetic. Uh, and it's gorgeous. It's very, intimate and vulnerable, but really feminine and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a lot of natural elements. I mean, you're from Santa Cruz. I, I went to UC Santa Cruz. I love Santa Cruz. Um, I feel like wildfire and the fact that, do you remember zines? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yes. I, I, like when I first got my first edition, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a zine. And that was always something I thought that was so cool because they're small. They're, yes. they're um, it's not like a good housekeeping or something like that. It's, it's tiny. So it's almost like a journal or, um, I, I just, I always think of it as a zine, but that's yeah. aging. That's going to age me. <laughs> yeah. Purse size. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Maybe the millennials will understand that a little bit better, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. And so I know that for people interested, um, I mean, obviously I'll link in the show notes, like to how to subscribe, but there are ways that people can, can contribute, can yes. submit and, and then the workshops tell, tell us about that. 
Yes. So the way that I do the magazine is that I break each issue into a theme surrounded by this idea of survivorship and this idea of what we talked about, how you have to take this experience, this diagnosis, this treatment, and then somehow move on from that day and continue on putting one foot in front of the other. So that's kind of my definition of survivors. And so I wanted to see how individuals were doing that, whether it was related to mental health or parenting or fertility or body, um, the sexual stuff we talked about. So I take each of those big themes and then break the magazine into focusing on those. And part of the reason I do that is because we get really used to telling our breast cancer stories really specifically based on our diagnosis and our treatment. And we're just kind of sharing stats with each other. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get into, okay, but who were you before cancer came along? And now who are you? Like, what have you done with that? that blow. Um, Mm. and so dividing the issues into these themes helps people to realize that they have a lot of stories they can tell. That's not just the diagnosis story or just the, the treatment experience. And so I put out a call for submissions. So right now on my website, there are all the themes coming up for this year and the submission um, deadlines and then some guidelines around how to write that story. And so, um, you know, yes, if you're listening and you were diagnosed under 50, I would love to have your story. It doesn't matter how old you are now. It's just that at some point you were diagnosed the first time or whatever, at some point under 50. And, um, Along the way, though, I realized that people sometimes need permission or need a nudge or need some kind of entry point onto the page. And so I started these writing workshops as a way to kind of get together and to do this work together, but also to help people with crafting that story and finding that story. And also, even if they never want to publish, experience the healing that can come from exploring your story in a narrative way. So I do... I just, it's funny. I had a workshop this morning that was my sixth of this week. So I do a lot of workshops during the week. (laughs) Yes. So I am hosting currently, um, two different types of workshops within wildfire. And then sometimes I'm also doing a free pop-up for the community that happened this week as well. And then I'm also sometimes doing, um, workshops for other organizations that want to bring that kind of healing writing to their members, but maybe don't have someone you know, who can offer it. So I'm trying to spread this, this healing writing around. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I have noticed that, you know, instead, as opposed to just tell us your story, tell us the stats, you really get into these interesting nuanced places that people don't even necessarily think about as part of the breast cancer experience, even if you've been through it yourself. Um, and, and you also have a podcast Uh, tell us about the, um, tell us about your podcast. Yeah. So the burn is new. It kind of has grown out of something that came to be during the pandemic. So the, the workshops, the online workshops were new during the pandemic where before that I was kind of doing more, um, sporadic writing things more at conferences Then the pandemic happened and we all realized that we had webcams and we could, (laughs) you know, figure out how to meet in person 
online. And so I realized that the community needed to feel connected in some way. And so we started doing that. And as an extension of that realization that we can gather still, you know, via Zoom and whatnot, I started hosting these storytelling nights that were around individual issues of the magazine. So like I said, each issue has like 30 contributors. So it wasn't all the writers, but I would pull maybe 10 writers from an issue. We would gather in a Zoom. Those writers would read their stories to a live audience. And I discovered people loved it because it was bringing the stories to life and it was giving the writer another layer to their healing experience to get to kind of perform this story. And a lot of them were terrified and also... (laughs) really excited about it. Yeah. So we started doing that. And then I felt kind of conflicted because I was doing those for current issues as they were coming out. Meanwhile, knowing that I had 30 issues in the archives and there, there was really amazing stories in there. And I wanted to capture the writers reading those stories as well, particularly the metastatic um, breast cancer community. I wanted to hear their voices linked to their stories. And so I started the podcast as a way of doing that, being able to go back in the archives, bring a writer on who would read her story. And then we could talk about the story, get an update, but also get into the craft of writing. And that's largely what the podcast is about is showcasing a story and then giving the listener the tools they need to write their own story and feel inspired to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So amazing. And I I've been really enjoying the podcast and I think it's a really unique contribution to this world and, and just another pathway to healing that I think can be really accessible for people. Sometimes people think, yeah, like, I mean, I focus on some of these more out there alternative methods of healing that can be a little bit, a little bit intimidating for people sometimes, but I think with writing, everybody's done some writing in their life and, uh, the way you set it up and the way you talk people through it and hearing the way other people have done it, which by the way, the caliber of writing is, Mm. is really impressive. Um, yeah, just, just beautiful. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, I know one of the things that I feel like you, like to discuss and and for very good reason in wildfire is the metastatic experience. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Like why? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So since day one of wildfire, I wanted to be sure that wildfire was inclusive of every stage of breast cancer, largely because at the time that I was starting the magazine. So this was 2016 it felt like there was a lot of division between early stage breast cancer and stage four breast cancer. And I felt really compelled by stories of, of the stage four community having to carve out space for themselves, have to support each other, have to find ways to do all of this big work while also in treatment and dealing with, you know, all of the side effects and mental, physical, you know, fallout from this diagnosis. And I just felt, what can I do to try to help support this community? And, um, so I just, from day one really wanted there to be stage four stories in wildfire so that we would 
I don't know, normally this doesn't feel like the right word, but, you know, just kind of fold stage four into the regular quote unquote, regular breast cancer community. So it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. so siloed. Um, and then through the course of that have really developed that being a big part of my personal advocacy. So there are portions or every, a portion of every subscription to wildfire is donated to both Metaviver and the cancer couch foundation, both of which give hundred percent of their donations to research to end the deaths from metastatic breast cancer. Wow. And, um, a lot of the women who come to my workshops are from all stages of breast cancer. And I personally, am just so honored that a large number of women in the metastatic community have identified wildfire as being a safe place where they can come share their stories, share the realities of what they're dealing with when they don't have that, um, that same attitude of just put your head down, get through breast cancer. And then you go back to, you know, your life as normal when they're living with something very different. I am so honored that they feel safe coming to wildfire and knowing their stories will be held in such high regard and that they can do this work in tandem with others who, who understand too. Yeah. I think that's important because there are, there are so many complicated feelings around, each stage, you know, there's this sort of almost this imposter syndrome with the stage, stage one or stage zero. And then, and then there's this whole world of, yeah, the metastatic patients that, you know, probably can't relate or they're having, yeah, they're dealing with totally different psychological um, processes around the whole experience. So I love that you are so passionate about including that. Mm -hmm. Um, What, as, as we kind of close out, I mean, is there anything that you, that you think that you'd like to say, or I love that. Um, we've covered so much ground. You know, we have, <laughs> we have actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I think like the, just the bottom line for me is that every story matters. I think that we grow up telling ourselves a version of either I, you're a writer or you're not a writer. There seems to be this like line in the sand of whether, you know, people grow up with this belief about themselves. And if you have grown up as one of those people who feels like you're not a writer or you're not allowed to write, or, or like you said, maybe you feel a little imposter syndrome because you don't think your experience was as difficult or something as someone else's. My goal is just that everyone know that their story matters. You have a story that's important to tell. And within breast cancer, there are so many really, really unique experiences Mm -hmm. that need to be explored because even though they're unique, you're definitely not the only one. And so if you can be brave and tell your story, that will change someone else's life. And that's that I think what it's all about. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really lovely sentiment. So like I said, I, I'm going to post all the links, but tell the listeners where they can find you. Yeah. So the best place to get everything is on my website. That's mm-hmm. wildfirecommunity.org. But I'm also on um, the social media platforms. So on Instagram, it's wildfire underscore BC underscore magazine. Facebook is wildfire community. And then on Twitter, it's real wildfire. 
and I apologize that they're all different. <laughs> they all <laughs> they all happened at different times. So. <laughs> oh, it's it's understandable. I'll make a link. So all you had to do is click on it. But April, I'm so so grateful to you for carving out time in your busy schedule to talk to me today. And I think a lot of women are gonna relate to your story. And I really hope people utilize this resource because it's very unique. And um, if you are a younger individual diagnosed with breast cancer, this, this is such a great relatable resource. You really don't feel alone or you feel seen <laughs> when you, Thank when you, you access this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am going to wrap it up here and, uh, but again, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it folks. That was April Stearns, such an incredible person and wonderful member of the community. I think that was a fantastic episode, if I say so myself. And um, thank you, Self, for saying that. I appreciate it. No problem. I will be back in two weeks with another episode. I hope you guys are enjoying the uh, the end of winter. We are about to get into spring soon. And uh, please share, subscribe, review the podcast positively. If, if that feels authentic to you, I would so appreciate it. Come find me on social media, Instagram, Junie Be Well, Facebook, Junie Be Well, or on my website, juniebewell.com. I just love being here with you today and every day. And as always, I'm wishing you well. Thanks. <laughs>